So Matthew chapter 25 and verse 1 through to 30 this morning. This is God's word to us and we thank him for it. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. And the wise, however, they took oil and jars along with them. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and for you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, and the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants to entrust his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey, and then the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has been given more and he will have abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We praise God for His Word to us. Well, if you have a Bible uh, handy, let's turn together to Matthew 25, those verses that we read earlier, page 994, if you've got one of the Pew Bibles. 
page 994, Matthew 25. We're looking at the first 30 verses of this chapter this morning. So how are you with waiting? As we were saying to the children a few minutes ago, there are some things that we wait for with great anticipation, and there are some things that we wait for with dread, aren't there? But the reality is we are all waiting for the return of Jesus, whether we're conscious of that or not. And that's something that we want to think about. Imagine Jesus were to return uh, tomorrow. History is wrapped up. Uh, Your plans are cut short. Appointments that you've made are irrelevant. Tickets that you've booked are are uh, unpresented. How would that be for you and for me? And how should we live knowing that there is a possibility that that could happen? That's what we're thinking about. In these mornings, we have been working our way through Matthew's gospel, Matthew's account of the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're almost at the part of the story where Jesus goes to the cross. That's going to happen in the next few chapters. And what we've been seeing is that Matthew records for us some big blocks of teaching, and we're on the last one of those. And the very focus of this last block of teaching is is largely the fact that Jesus will go from the earth, but He will return to the earth again. This is something perhaps that that some of us don't think about all that much, but, but it is a central tenet of the Christian faith. Sometimes we recite the Apostles' Creed. It's been in use by the church for the best part of 2,000 years. And one of the things that we say whenever we recite that creed speaks about Jesus, and it says this, on the third day He rose, He ascended into heaven. In other words, He, he, he went. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where He is now. And He will come to judge the living and the dead. Church has been saying that for 2,000 years. In other words, we find ourselves today, here in 2018, between two pivotal events in history the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ on His first arrival, and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in His second arrival. His first coming was marked by meekness and humility when He came as a baby to Bethlehem. His second coming will be very different as He comes to, as we've been saying, judge the living and the dead. At His first coming, He was largely hidden. Only a few people realized that Jesus had arrived. At His second coming, the Bible tells us, every eye will see Him. And this is what Christianity claims. It's what the Bible says. Jesus is coming again. What does that mean for us? Well, in the two parables that we read earlier, we see what it means. It means, of course, that we're waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to return. Christians have always looked forward to the fact of Jesus' return. Almost the last words of the Bible are a prayer, come Lord Jesus. So we're waiting, but what does that waiting look like? Jesus makes it clear in these two parables that our waiting is to be marked with readiness, and our waiting is to be marked with activity. So as we wait, we're to be ready. As we wait, we're to be active. That's, That's what we're looking at this morning. So first thing, looking at the first parable, as we wait, let's be ready. As we wait, let's be ready. Jesus has already taught about the need to be ready. John was looking at that 
uh, with us last Sunday morning. But now he takes the opportunity to pick up on that theme and to drive that home by using a parable. And in this case, it's a parable that illustrates the point very clearly. It's a parable about a wedding. And to, to understand what happens here, it is helped a little if we uh, understand a little of how weddings work at the time of Jesus. In those days, weddings could last several days. The richer you were, the longer the thing went on. And uh, the main ceremony took place usually at the home of the groom. And part of what happened was that in preparation, the groom went to get the bride from the bride's house in the days when usually you married someone on the other side of the village, as it were. And so they, they, there would be some things that would be happen there. There would be some ceremonies and food and, and, and different bits and pieces and so on. And then whenever that was finished, the groom and the bride and, and the sort of the, the, the bridal party would process from the bride's house to a, the, the, the groom's house, and there the main celebration would take place, and actually the marriage would take place. There was no telling how long that first bit at the bride's house would take. It usually took some time, and, and, and it, was, it was unpredictable. And, and so if you were a guest at the main event, you, you had to wait for this procession to come. And here are these 10 virgins, these 10 young girls. Maybe it's their first wedding. They've been really, really looking forward to this. And time marches on. It's a change, isn't it, to be waiting for a groom rather than a bride, but it's the way it was. And time marches on. They fall asleep. There's no criticism of them for falling asleep. It's the natural thing to do. It gets dark at six o'clock, and at that time, people went to bed. But it's midnight before the, the groom and his entourage arrive, and so they waken up, and uh, the, the shout goes up that the groom is here, and they, they, they get themselves ready. They, they've had some torches because it's going to take place at night. They're prepared enough for that, at least. The torches were, were probably just rags that were soaked in oil that were burning, and they needed to be regularly refed with oil. These rags perhaps have been burning since six o'clock, so, so some of them have gone out, and uh, they, they needed to trim them and get them ready again to, to, to burn again so that they could proceed to the, the main event. And some of them have no oil, they have no extra supplies with them. They ask the ones who have, the five who have, but there's not enough to go around. It's something that they needed to take individual responsibility for. So they're told to go and try to buy some, uh, but the 24-hour Tesco's hasn't opened yet in that part of the world, and so they, they have to waken up the guy in the corner shop, and it takes him ages. And, and, and so by the time that they, they get the, the torches and get them lit again, they arrive at the groom's house, but, but there's all sorts of possibilities for gate crashers, and, and so the groom says, I don't know you. What a disaster. Now, of course, Jesus is using familiar story to make a, a really clear point about his coming again. You see how it starts in verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So Jesus has been talking about his second coming all the way through chapter 24, and at the end of the chapter especially, and, and he uses this story to say, now, as you wait for this, at that time, be ready as you wait. Be ready for my appearing. 
He implies, of course, that there's going to be a delay. There are two strands that run right through the Bible when we think about Jesus coming again. On the one hand, it says that it is imminent. We, we need to live as if Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Martin Luther said that, as if he, he died yesterday, rose today, and is coming tomorrow. But the other strand is that there is a delay and both of those strands are important. The cause of the delay, we, we know, is that Jesus is doing something. He's building his church. He's gathering people who know him. They will be his bride, in fact. His bride is not yet complete, if you like. But he is coming. Don't mistake his delay for the abandonment of his plans. He has not abandoned his plans. There is a date in the heavenly calendar, a point past which history will not proceed. The bridegroom will arrive. And the question is, are we ready for his coming? Actually, the question is maybe better put, are you ready for his coming? Singular, am I ready for his coming? Because there's something individualistic about this. Do you notice that the five girls who've run out of oil try to benefit from the preparation that others have made, but this is a preparation that cannot be shared. Personal preparation is necessary. So, so it's not enough to say, well, my parents are ready, or my husband is ready, or my, my wife is ready. The question is, am I ready? It, it, it's no use saying, well, I know that it's true. I'm not an atheist. I believe there is a God. I'll do something about it someday. The, the girls that missed out at this wedding banquet were not skeptics about the bridegroom. They didn't go around saying, oh, I don't really think there is a bridegroom. Nor were they agnostics. They, they weren't saying, I'm not really sure you can know if there is a bridegroom. No, they know he exists. They know he is coming. They fully intend to be part of the celebration, but they are not ready, and they miss out. As you wait, are you ready? That's what this asks. And what does it mean to be ready? It's not a matter of having your affairs in order or cleaning up your life. The Jesus who says these things is going to be nailed to a cross before this week is out. Because he knows that you cannot clean up your life, and I cannot turn my life around in any really significant way. You can patch it up a little, but really you need a new life. And that's what he has come to give you. He knows that you have no hope at all of, of being ready apart from the fact that he is going to take your sin on the cross. We are that much of a mess, but we are that loved that... He is willing to do that. He gives his life so that you and, and I can have new life. And he asks that you and I believe him, abandon ourselves to him, trust him, know that he is our only hope. So that's basic to waiting well. But that's not all that, that Jesus is concerned about. He's also concerned about the manner of our waiting. And that brings us to our second point, that as we as we wait, we're supposed to be doing something. We're supposed to be active. As you wait, be active. Here's the second parable. We know it as the parable of the talents. Now, now let's be clear, because this word talents can cause some confusion. Whenever we think of talents, we think of things like 
uh, being able to do keepy-uppies with football or, or, or play the violin or something like that. That's not what this is about. This sort of talent was just a, a weight of money. So, so maybe it's better to think of it in terms of bags of money. What's the story? A man goes off on a journey. He leaves certain sums of money in the care of three servants. They're slaves, really. In those days, servants could have tremendous responsibility, and so it's not hard to imagine. One's given five bags of money, one, two, one, one. It was the biggest unit of, of weight for money that was commonly used. It estimates have varied for this, but it's either hundreds of thousands or possibly millions of pounds. It's, it's, it's an enormous sum. And, and the master is obviously very rich because he says later on that they have been faithful with a few things. He gives them several million pounds and says, you've been faithful with a few things, just a little. Well, off he goes. First servant gets to work. You notice it says it once in verse 16. We don't know what he did, but whatever he did, he was tremendously successful. And over the time that the master was away, he doubled the money. The man with two bags of money did the same. He, he ended up with four. And the third man, however, went off and dug a hole and buried it. And after a long time, again, there's that theme of delay. After a long time, the, the, the master returns and the servants are called into account for what they have done. With the first two, the master's very pleased. He speaks to him in the same sort of way, well done, good and faithful servant. So, so both their, their character and their work is good. You see, they're, 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 you're, you're a good servant and your work is good. And he rewards them with two things, it seems. More responsibility, I'm going to give you more things to do. And I'm going to give you a special blessing. Come and share in your master's happiness. We'll say more about that in a moment. But then comes this last servant. He tells the master what he's done with his money, but he also tells him why. Look at verse 24. Then the man who'd received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. Now, it's clear, actually, that this guy has not grasped who the master really is at all. He, he, he doesn't really know him because this master we actually see is tremendously kind. He wants his servants to share in his happiness. And yet this servant thinks he's a, a bad master. He doesn't love him. He resents him. He doesn't know him. And the master is furious. He highlights the real reason for his lack of anything to show for it. Uh, he is wicked and lazy. If he'd really believed the master to be a hard man, he would have at least invested it and been able to hand over the interest. But as it was, he did nothing. And he's thrown into outer darkness, this picture of punishment. Now, here's what all of this is about. Jesus is making it clear that as we wait for Christians... As we wait for him, what matters is, is not that we're just sitting back and saying, well, I know I'm ready, I'm okay, got my ticket. We are active in furthering the master's interests. We're active in furthering the master's interests. We take what he gives us, many, many blessings, and we use what he gives us to further his interests. We live by his agenda. So this is saying, Jesus is saying, as my servants, your life is not about furthering your own interests. Don't you hate the way that the internet knows more about you than you do? I used to get adverts that popped up for health and fitness equipment. Not anymore. 
I get adverts now for retirement plans. Saga have started posting things on my Facebook. And, and there's, there's a picture that comes up all the time. It's of a, a fit, tanned 55-year-old sitting on a yacht in the Caribbean. And it's clear that he's got it made. And it says, are you ready to retire? No, I'm not ready to retire. Click. Um, and these adverts are saying very, very clearly, here's what your life should be like. Work hard at your own interests so that you can have eventually the life that you've always really wanted. But Jesus is saying, there is a greater purpose to your life than your own interests, and that is his interests. He, you see, is building his kingdom. He's extending his rule across the globe into lives. He is gathering a people for himself. So he says to us as his followers, if we are his followers here today, he says, further those interests. Use what I have given you to further those interests. You see, the reality is we're all pouring our lives into something or into perhaps many things. And Jesus makes it clear that those who are called to his side are to use their lives for furthering his concerns. In that, he has given us tremendous resources. That's the truth in the story, isn't it? Gives us millions, as it were. Elsewhere in the Bible, it tells us that we are given everything we need for life and godliness. Everything. Amazing resources for you and for me to be fruitful in a productive life for Jesus Christ. Now, what would that look like? In some ways, it looks like, like everything God has called us to do, doesn't it? It means showing his love and his kindness to others. Jesus went around doing good, calls us to do that as well. I love that little verse from Psalm 84. Blessed are those, it says, whose strength is in you and whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Valley of Baca was a desert. Imagine walking through the desert, just leaving a flourishing meadow behind you. It's a picture of what God's people are called to do. Sent out into the world and to bring blessing. Think of it. Ask yourself, how, how can I cause the, the places that I'm going to this week to be less like deserts and more like meadows? Further the master's interest in your work, in your social life. It is certainly also seeking to introduce others to him through our, our words and our lives. Because ultimately, there's no flourishing apart from that. There's no, there's no meadow apart from knowing Jesus Christ. So, so, ask ourselves the question, what am I pouring my life into? Whose interests am I furthering? You see the little remarkable detail in this parable, and that is that the master wants to share his joy with his servants. In verse 21, he says, come and share your master's happiness. He says that to both of the productive servants. The scholars tell us that these are really slaves, that their lives are really owned by the master. He, they are his to do what he pleases with. And yet here is a master who cares for them so much that he says, I want you to share in my happiness. So he's Here's what we've got to know about the Lord. He is not exploiting us. He's blessing us. He knows that there is no greater joy than to be about his work. 
Jesus said this as a child. Do you remember, remember Jesus' parents took him to the temple and they, they lost him? They left him there. And they find him and they, he sort of says to them, why are you so surprised? Don't you know that I'm supposed to be about my father's business? Later on in his ministry, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Now, Jesus, let's remember, is the most perfect human being, also God, but the most perfect human being who ever existed. You cannot do better than him. Do you think he got this wrong? Do you think we should say to Jesus something like this, oh, Jesus, it's, it's nice for you to be about your father's business, but you should know that life is really about retiring and sitting in a yacht in the Caribbean. Real joy is found in giving yourself to him and his purposes. What does this look like for you? Maybe it means a radical overhaul of how your life works, root and branch. Maybe it means thinking more about how you can be a, a blessing to the people around you. Maybe it means really starting to, to ask God to, to, to help you pray for and witness to your family and friends because there are lots of them who don't know the Lord, not ready for His return, and it hasn't really moved you to action yet. Maybe for some of us, it means leaving the life that you thought you were going to have and giving yourself to His service in another place. Maybe you're here, and, and this is what you're doing. You're saying, I want to live my life for Him. That's great. Keep going. It certainly means not wasting your life on things that are less than the master's interests. I told this story before, used this now very well-known illustration of John Piper's. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, it's, it's the story of the shells. He says, I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the 1998 February edition of the Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, John Piper says, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof of the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your Creator, be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them, John Piper says, before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of pounds to persuade you to embrace that tragic great dream. Over against that, Piper says, I put my protest, don't buy it, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. As we live between these two 
critical and crucial events in all of human history, Jesus' first coming and His second. Don't waste your life. Be ready for His coming. Be active as you wait. Let's pray together. Lord, we know well the words of the creed. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And yet sometimes we, we live as if that is just not present. Help us, Lord, to know and believe that You are coming and to live our lives in accordance with that truth to be ready for your coming, to be active as we wait. Thank you, Lord, that you desire that we share your happiness. Help us to know that true joy is found in giving ourselves to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.